BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Trish and Sarah Wrestling Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Trish. And this is our podcast. We talk about wrestling news and various topics from different promotions, primarily AEW, but also New Japan Pro Wrestling, WWE, and topics from around the wrestling world. Whatever we find interesting, we hope you will too. We are a member of the Social Suplex Podcast Network, and you can find our content on our podcast feed, the Social Suplex Podcast feed, as well as on Twitter and YouTube. Please feel free to like, subscribe, and rate our podcast. Today is Monday, February 19th, 2024. Um, we're going to kick off our podcast with a uh, briefer update on the WWE lawsuit and all things WWE right now. Um, we also want to take a quick moment to thank everyone for your feedback and your comments on our uh, last episode. Um, we greatly, greatly appreciated it. Um, we're thankful to anybody who listened and took the time to reach out to us. So thank you very much. So we haven't had too many updates on the lawsuit, the WWE Janelle Grant lawsuit itself, um, the most interesting up, uh, updates that have come out in the last couple of weeks are essentially about uh, Ashley Massaro, uh, the former uh, WWE uh, wrestler. Um, and these came out through Tim Marchman and Anna Merlin, who are covering the story for Vice. Um, Tim Marchman is... Uh, familiar with wrestling. He's done some interviews in the last week or so where he has, as a wrestling fan, it's made it a little bit easier for him to challenge this. One of the things he has followed up on is um, information about Ashley Massaro. And again, we're going to put a trigger warning at the top of this topic. It's, you know, mentions of rape and sexual assault. Um, But Ashley Massaro claimed that she had been sexually assaulted during a WWE um, tour of Kuwait on a military base in 2006. Um, This claim came out as part of an affidavit that was submitted in a case where ex-WWE wrestlers were suing WWE over CTE risks. Um, The affidavit was made public in 2019 after Massaro's death. Um, The WWE at the time, after the affidavit was made public and the claims about the rape were made public, um, they denied that anyone high level in WWE had ever heard of this. This was something that they set up, swore, released a statement basically saying that if anybody at WWE knew about this, it would have been immediately reported to military personnel, blah, blah, blah. So um, Tim Marshman published two articles where he essentially was able to get John Laurinaitis to release a statement through his attorneys where he admitted that the... um, and I'm going to use alleged in this because obviously this is not a proven case and Ashley Massaro's not here anymore, but, you know, um, where the Tim, 
John Lornay said that this was common knowledge. Ashley Massaro's claims about the rape in 2006 were common knowledge in 2006 in WWE. Um, this contradicted their 2020 statement. Um, and Marchman also was able to find a podcast from last year uh, with an interview from WWE doctor Ferdinand Rios, where Dr. Rios also indicated that this was common knowledge in WWE. So immediately within two brief weeks, Marchman was able to do enough research where he was debunking essentially a WWE statement they made in 2020. Um, and one of the interesting things that got brought up, and I'll, I'll sort of do a brief side note on this, is um, Tim Marshman obviously is asking for people to come forward if they have information. He's asking wrestlers to come forward. But he also said to fans, if you have information or knowledge of interviews or, or podcast topics like this that you think are relevant, please feel free to reach out and let me know. Which I thought was really interesting because I think a lot of wrestling fans have a, a deeper knowledge of things that that seem obvious to us that are maybe not always obvious to reporters and other folks looking into this. So. I just can't get over the part where an actual reporter was able to get information to debunk so much of the bullshit around Ashley Massaro's case. Um, he was able to reach out to NCIS because it turns out that um, Massaro's medical care that she was received where she claimed the rape occurred took place at a naval facility, not an army facility. And so uh, it turns out that NCIS did open an investigation into this rape in 2019. They did close it. He's filed a Freedom of Information Act requesting more information from the Navy about the, about the investigation. Like, you know... Trish, if, if an actual reporter with resources is able to do this, and I, I'm sure he put a lot of work into it, I'm not trying to downplay that at all, but like relatively quickly, it kind of says not particularly complimentary things about the way a lot of this stuff in wrestling has been covered. It's been kind of that way for a long period of time. Yeah, people, people treat wrestling as still kind of this circus sideshow. They don't look at it as a serious business, even though, you know, WWE have been a publicly traded company for how long now? Over Two, 20 years? 25, almost 25. Yeah, so, and TKO are also a public traded company. I and mean, we've seen this similar with TKO with the, the thing with Dunham White uh, slapping his wife. Right. Got very little coverage after that initial. They are also very good at kind of shutting things down, TKO. And there seems to be this very much this attitude of we can't hear anything, we are not going to comment on anything, we are not going to say anything about anything. When it's quite clear, looking at the information on the Ashley Massaro case, that there was public knowledge amongst the leadership in WWE. And this yep. is another example of, you know, we're going to protect the business because we're going to protect our relationship with the military. And, yep. you know, the attitude towards victims in this industry. And there's going to be further on that tonight. You know, Lee Cole, the brother of uh, Tom Cole, who's a former ring boy, is interviewing another former ring boy around his experiences. So when we talked last time about culture, what Tim Marchman is doing is exposing kind of the cover-up culture of these sort of things in WWE pretty quickly and pretty effectively, which I don't know really says much about kind of their kind of blasé attitude to things or the things they thought nobody would look into. I'm not sure which side that is, really. It's, you know, the other article that Tim Marshman, <coughs> excuse me, published was essentially about a statement that Ashley Massaro made to her attorneys as part of this 2018 case about CTE. The attorneys did not end up including it as part of the original lawsuit, um, and that lawsuit was dismissed, I should say, um, 
because they felt that it didn't have any relevance to the CTE part of the lawsuit. But the statement was about um, the culture in WWE, how she herself felt that um, she'd been on the receiving end of extremely aggressive advances from Vince McMahon that she didn't want. She claimed in the statement that she'd seen Vince McMahon making out, quote, were her, was her quote, with uh, other women wrestlers in the locker room, that when she rejected Vince McMahon's request for her to come up to his hotel room, for her to travel on private chats with him, um, he essentially punished her by, you know, creating promos and dialogue for her that were just sort of really, really bad and outrageous to the point where she claimed in the statement that she showed the, the promos to uh, Michael B. Hayes, who's still a WWE employee, still works um, at a high level in WWE. And he said, those are the breaks, kid. You said no to him and you're going to get buried, which, you know, one of the things I think I found so frustrating about some of the responses from people about this is it's like, oh, well, he just got his he got his girlfriend a job. <clears throat> a lot of people want to say, like, Vince just got his girlfriend a job. And, like, you know, we touched on this more in our last episode, but I think, you know, like you said, Tim Marshman's done a very, very good job of sort of exposing, like, the cultural rot at WWE. And it, it, reading these articles, it makes it very, very difficult to believe that this is just a one-off, one guy. And I think that's the kind of thing where it's difficult for me to imagine that you have the um, someone at the highest levels of WWE who's using his power and his ability to take advantage of women, right? To put them in situations where they feel like they cannot say no, and no one else is doing this. This is an acceptable practice for one man only, and nobody underneath him is taking advantage of that to to do shit like that on their own. Like I think we've seen that culture doesn't in, in corporations and places like that doesn't that it's kind of that would be kind of unusual, I guess it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen enough examples across the rest of the industry to say that that culture has bled um, mainly you know, because of the, the kayfabe, protect the business, whatever you want to call it yep. that culture has bled into pretty much every company that we've had in history at one time or another you know, maybe not in terms of sexual assault but definitely in terms of power plays so it's not yeah, untoward to think that there may be, and that's a point that he made quite well. So yes, I, I think there's a there's a tendency with wrestling to be kind of protective of it, and to think that we know who some of these people are and who they, you know, what they're capable of, and to think that we're not cap- they're not capable of. But then somebody comes in from the outside and he says, "Well, if we have this culture, then everybody is potentially capable of these things." Right. And that was something he identified quite quickly. And that was kind of the opposite of what we've seen from a lot of kind of wrestling media who really want to kind of pull their hands away from the fire, so to speak, and not get involved or just say, you know, I'm I'm assisting with other people. But the media kind of drives coverage, I think, to me. Yes. I don't think it's not like, why should wrestling media shouldn't be led by the national media in some ways they should be kind of focusing on okay so this is our industry this is what we cover this is what people pay to hear us cover how are we going to make it better rather than saying you know this could do significant damage to the industry so maybe we'll just kind of pull away so we're not associated with that i I don't is it cowardly or is it self-preservation what would you call it uh, my more generous moments, I say it's self-preservation, and more, mm-hmm. my more you know angrier moments, I say it's cowardice. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we've seen 
And we touched on this a little bit in our last episode, but we've seen a, like a wide spectrum of coverage on this from wrestling media, <laughs> yes. right? Um, you know, uh, John Pollock and Brandon Thurston interviewed uh, Tim Marshman, believe it was Wednesday the 14th. Um, and that was a fascinating interview. Marshman is, I really, and I, want, I can't stress enough that I hope you guys would seek these things out for yourselves, not just based on our recap of them. But Marshman was a great interview. He was so good at explaining. And it's something you so rarely, you know, maybe I'm just jaded in this, but to hear a man in a wrestling podcast talk about why women would be uncomfortable coming forward. And he drew direct parallels to Sandra Deville's experience being, you know, with the stalker, talking about fan response, talking about specifically saying women don't want to be defined by the worst thing that's happened to them. Like just a tremendous amount of compassion and sympathy he had for the victims in, in a practical sense, discussing it. I, it was so refreshing that it was almost depressing to me that I was like, wow, you know, he did a great job on that podcast. I, I know he also did um, Dave Meltzer and Garrett Gonzalez also interviewed him. I was not able to listen to that. I had some you know, family stuff this weekend that prevented me from doing <laughs> intense wrestling, <laughs> intense wrestling podcast listens. But I know you listened to him with um, mm -hmm. on both of these. Can you give me any high level points on that interview? They were pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, but what I thought was really interesting, so was actually if you compare Dave's way of kind of responding to it to kind mm. of how he was earlier in the week when he responded to Jim Valley's show last weekend. Mm. And Jim Valley has been really, really strong on this and, you know, is not talking about anything else on Wall. He, on nope. Saturday, he just decided this is what I'm talking about. I'm going to focus on this because actually until we clean this up, I can't enjoy wrestling. And he feels like a failure, essentially, because we've all known things. We all continue to give them our money, even though, you know, a lot of these stories are out there. It's like we're desensitized to it. Yeah. Because it's so constant. You pick up, you know, autobiography from one 80s, 90s wrestler and, you know, someone's driving along a car, high as anything, they have a car crash, somebody gets, you know, like these things were just seen as regular occurrences and there's so many stories, but we just kind of go, well, it's wrestling. But it's not wrestling, is it? It's a workplace like anywhere else. And until we start treating it that way, nothing's going to improve, nothing's going to change. You mean you can have a hierarchy. I have a hierarchy in my job. But yeah. it doesn't mean we don't treat people with compassion or fairness. That doesn't right. impact that hierarchy. So, yeah, I, I thought he was um, quite influential on Dave, actually. And it was a complete turnaround from early in the week where he was rightly um, Al Brian Alvarez kind of criticized for their reaction to that. And, you know, fair play, because if you are able to say, you know what, I was wrong. And, right. you know, he made it quite clear that he thought very much that Stephanie McMahon was aware of it, which is quite a key detail. So you are talking someone who was not only on the board of directors, married to Triple H um, as well, who also on the board of directors and obviously daughter of Vince McMahon, but was also on the board when Vince came back into power and resigned very shortly after. Yeah. Had signed that letter to say he was not able, he shouldn't come back to the company. Right. So this is quite a key individual and it just opens up, you know, we're hearing more and more names, more and more people involved. So that thing of it's, it's just one guy, it's not holding up already. We're, we're two weeks out. How many right. more of these tales are we going to hear? How many more things are we going to hear from the history of WWE? How many more things are kind of undercurrent stories that have been talked about that are going to become more public? And it might not be straight away. You know, we might have a, a bit of a drip over it 
but um, I don't think it's going away. And I think no. there are people that want to pretend it's going away and they want to focus on, you know, Cody and the rock and, you know, that kind of look over here. Here's a shiny rock to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to kind of, uh, to look at as we discussed, you know, we were very early on in that program when we discussed it last time, but there are some places that are absolutely, that's all they want to talk about. Even some of the kind of more renowned wrestling journalists are kind of well, it's- very loose on this subject. So it's kind of a, you know, we, I sort of discussed this at one point where people were like, and, and this, it came up a lot on the figure four board this week where people's sort of frustration <laughs> kind of boiled over where it's like, well, yes. what are we supposed to do? You know, how are, how are we supposed to talk about this? You know, and I, you know, you and I certainly were the, very much were jumped on the idea that again, a lot of our, a lot of people in the wrestling media don't have the resources or the availability or the, the, the you know, like we talked about the legal stuff to be able to do this. But I think the follow-up has been somewhat depressing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at Fightful Select had like two giant compendiums in articles about how do the wrestlers feel about, you know, The Rock and Cody and that whole program. And it's like, you couldn't do one of these about the, 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 the WWE lawsuit. Like you couldn't, you know, and fair play to them for having asked questions and scrums and stuff like that. But it's definitely something where it's like, oh, we got this. It, there's a feel to it of, I got this out of the way. I asked the question, now I can go back to talking about the fun stuff, right? It's an, ob- it's an obligation. Right. They're treating it as something- an obligation. Right. It's not like a genuine thing where it's like, oh, we're really curious about this. And I think the difficulty in covering this is something that, you know, we don't want to downplay, right? And I think mm-hmm. um, Jesse Collings had a great episode of the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast where he talked to Trevor Game, and one of the things they talked about was how to cover this, how to prevent it from being something that just fatigues people, you know, how to uh, bring up questions, you know, and and it was a really, again, I, I strongly recommend give it a listen because it was a really interesting look into what should be asked, like what kinds of questions should be asked and how difficult is it when you have these opportunities in press scrums and there are no follow-up questions to stuff when Triple H says, well, you know, I didn't read the lawsuit, right? There were no follow-up questions of how are you protecting, you know, your women wrestlers. That's another one that has made me a little bit nuts, right? Like, that's that's an easy layup question. And there's like a dozen of these different avenues that you can fall down and it doesn't have to be like legal questions. It's like, okay, well, you you clearly want to say that the bad man is gone. We had a culture change, okay? Can you follow up on that at all? Like, what exactly changed in the culture? What's different, right? How are things different now than they were four years ago when Vince McMahon was there. Like, if that's not something that folks can answer quickly, then that doesn't say that there, that suggests that maybe there hasn't been a culture change. And again, one of the things that Tim Marchman has done very succinctly is laid out why you cannot trust WWE, and I think by extension now TKO, when they say that they've done these things, right? Because they were very quick to say that they had no idea that Ashley Massaro said she'd been raped in Kuwait, and that clearly was like folded like a cheap house of cards, like folded like a crumpled piece of paper the second anybody put any attention or effort into debunking that. It's funny because we say about follow-up, but it's been kind of, it's, it's, I don't know what a word I want to pick for that is, but they've done, WWE themselves have had no follow-up at all to these. None. None. To these allegations or to the lawsuit, there's been no denial. There's been no follow-up other than the from them questions at the press conference. In fact, we changed the press conference to a WrestleMania kickoff show, <laughs> which had 200 press um, in Las Vegas with, I think they said, a crowd of 3,400, which they got very excited about because I'm sure... Yeah, when they booked The Rock and T-Mobile Arena, they expected 3,400. I know. <laughs> 
But yeah, that suddenly smoothly changed across to, oh, now this is a kickoff event. And actually, you're just doing press interviews, like the same kind of uh, talent interviews that you saw during the Rumble. You know, soft, soft questions, that sort of thing. Right. Um, absolutely no benefit, really, whatsoever. Um, you know, you can say Seth Rollins got asked and he, get, he, he literally just said, yeah, it's disgusting. And he pretty much said what needed to be said. Uh, but that's a talent. And that's not going to answer any of these questions. Right. You know, it's a top talent. Somebody that is relied upon by the company. Their experience is going to be very, very different. And it's even more ironic that not only is Triple H not asking, not answering any questions on this, or Dwayne Johnson, who is now on the TK board, or Nick Khan, who just seems to go missing unless he appears in some sort of influencer photo every three, four weeks. None of them are talking, and yet two of them are all over social media and WWE television doing a follow-up to their meta mess of an angle. So we now put Triple H at this period of time when he was on the board, when different, do you mean different ones, kind of different things here, former head of talent relations, we are putting him on TV as a character. He basically says, like, we don't think anything's going to happen or we're just going to pretend nothing's happening. I mean, this is like we talked about. This is exactly how they've handled everything from the beginning of time, right? They don't, they don't believe that any of this is going to, you know ever backfire have an issue on them it's wrestlemania season people are tuning into smackdown and raw in giant numbers because the rock showed up you know the story doesn't have to be consistent or coherent the you know the rock is there and we're going to make up all sorts of fantasy booking angles about how great this is right we're all going to pretend know. that it was according to plan yeah it made like, sense this was the plan what? the whole time like are you I, come on come on come on <sighs> It's so depressing. stupid. It's so stupid. And like, again, you know, if you like it, you like it. I get it. You feel bad. Fine. You still want to watch it. I get it. But like, you know, at some point, these guys are going to have to actually wrestle, right? Like someone's going to have to wrestle someone else. <laughs> like, yeah. that the po- it doesn't feel like that's the point of this. Like Roman doesn't wrestle. The Rock hasn't wrestled. Cody's out there doing feuds with totally other people, right? They, they made a great deal of um, basically teasing a Rock Triple H match in that backstage thing at a press conference. Um, right. Let's ignore Dave's. I don't know what the fuck that was on Friday, but oh, um, Jesus. but um, no, they did tease that match—a match that can't happen. You should never right. do that. That's crazy. Then you're teasing, you're kind of teasing Cody Rock, which is also not your match. You made Roman look like an idiot, which maybe that's pain down the line because he made Seth look like an idiot. So you know, you want some or some, and then. They had The Rock go out and he's now the heel and he is just going to overshadow everything, just like Hulk Hogan did to him at uh, WrestleMania uh, 18. So, and that's a distraction. That's to keep all the eyes off it. But what happens when you get to April? What happens when Cody's finished his story and you've got what challenges? What happens when people start to actually notice that the live event numbers aren't as strong as you think they are? Right, especially the house show numbers, yeah. Um, so, you know, we're definitely at a plateau, if not a slight decrease. It's kind of interesting because their kind of key period this year is towards the end of the year. It's not now. No. You know, maybe they want to, you know, they've got sponsorships for WrestleMania, they've got, you know, they want to get as many views as possible to 
higher up the peacock number or whoever goes for their pay-per-view streaming library rights next year but their key is to deliver you know key starting numbers for usa when smackdown moves which is going to be <laughs> an interesting thing to keep an eye on uh, cw for nxt who man i think never ever paid but we'll see and uh with netflix in january and then managing where the hell that goes in october so if you peak this early and you're throwing everything at it and you're doing that thing that they do whenever they're in trouble is you throw somebody from the past at it yep but it's kind of undermines the reasons that they have had so so much success in the last few years is they have been able to pretend that they are the baby face company yep. that nothing's ever happened to them and also that the people that they push now are presented at the same level or higher than the people from the past which is a mistake they've made for years and years and years of doing the opposite well, you've kind of blown everything up in one go. And they're not comparable. They're not comparable, so <laughs> I'm not going to pretend they are. So booking is not comparable to exposing you know, a history of sexual exploitation. No. But it kind of... These things do have an effect. Maybe it's not straight away. Maybe you get your peak. But then they will have an effect. I know kind of people doubt that and they look at brands and they say, oh, you know, there's some... There's some the more things come out and the more it becomes a focal point, the more it takes away from people's kind of feeling of enjoyment, then it does have an effect. And I think the more personal stories you hear, you hear, uh, is much more of the driver. You know, when people can put a name or a face or words to somebody, it really kind of changes things. And I thought, did you see the interview that uh, the best friend of Ashley Mazzaro, uh, Cara Pipia, did on News Nation? I didn't see it, but I did read um, the recaps of it, and I read, you know, essentially the transcript of what she talked about. Yeah, well, one of the last things that she said kind of really stuck with me, because she said, you know, why have they thrived for so long? Why doesn't anybody stand up? Why are so many people in that company aware of what's happening to these women? Women who can sit, commit suicide year after year, nobody stands up and says anything. No one tries to protect these young women. Why? Because it's not just Vince. It's the whole freaking company. And then she was asked straight afterwards, you know, do you think this situation, QA, and then the other things with Vince contributed to Ashley's death? And she said, you know, 99%, you know, absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, what more consequences do you need? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about someone that can't put their own words in front of us now outside of the affidavit. Because she's no longer with us because of the things that happened to her. Yeah. According to belief of her friends. What more do you need? How? <laughs> what is the respect for human life? Where is the line here? I just... Yeah, maybe that's the thing that makes me depressed. I think people are numb in general to this thing. I don't think it helps. Or maybe it does, you know. Is he going to get wrapped in with Donald Trump this year? Is that going to be a thing? Are people going to look into him more because of his association with that family with Trump? Is that going to protect... I don't know. Um... It's, it's just, maybe I'm slightly more negative around kind of the follow-up than I was kind of optimist previously. But I do think it will, will we kind of come out on the wash and end, but it's just going to be kind of frustrating watching everything else in the meantime. I think it's like anything else. I think, you know, there are going to be ups and downs, right? And we've seen that even this week, you know, as you said, you know, Dave Meltzer and the way he chose to cover this changed 
during a fairly brief window. And I think that's one of those things where, you know, like I said, when you talk about like compassion and understanding, people are human beings, right? And some people are asshole human beings and some people are, you know, wonderful, amazing human beings. And a lot of people are just like the rest of us that are just trying to do their best and struggle and get through the day. And sometimes you have the mental energy and the ability to do your best on stuff like this. And sometimes you just, you want to go home and you want to have a drink and you want to go to bed. <laughs> you know, it's been a long day. So sure. I think that's something that, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd like to be optimistic and think that this time it's different, that this time it's, you know, um, a little bit more horrific and a little bit more terrible and people are willing to take a look at it and say, hey, you know, this isn't okay. And like we talked about last time, the wheels of justice are going to move very slowly. And it was reassuring to me to see Tim Marchman was very, very clear that he felt like this was not going to be a story that disappeared. There was going to be more about this that came out, that this was, you know, this was going to be a criminal case, was, you know, sort of seemed to be the subtext of a lot of what he was saying, which definitely made me feel a lot better. But I get it, you know, there's there's ups and downs and, and sometimes it just becomes a little bit too much, right? It's just mm -hmm. a, a little bit too much some days where you're like, oh, I don't want to have another fight with someone. <laughs> I don't want to get into another argument with someone who's refusing to, you know, even listen or read the basic facts, <laughs> right? Or to, to uh, Occam's razor. And if it was annoying when it was stupid stuff like, you know, CM Punk and backstage arguments, it's even worse when it's discussions about sexual assault and you know, the overall shitty way women are treated in the industry, mm -hmm. you know, and in society sometimes, right? Sure. So, but listen, I think we just have to be optimistic, hope for the best and continue to push to tell people, hey, stop that. <laughs> stop talking about that like that. Pay attention. No, which isn't always fun. Oh, and, you know, fair play to Post for really leading the coverage, you know, driving oh. that media coverage of this. Fantastic consistently and leading their shows of it and i think we'll probably do exactly the same for the foreseeable future as well you know it's not yeah. going to something we're going to just going to hide behind so we can just talk about fun things in wrestling because these are fundamental changes that have been needed for such a long period of time you know yeah. wrestling needs to catch up with the rest of the world yeah and it's, you know, it's impacted everything that WWE is doing right now. Like, you know, if, if you're capable of, of looking at the product and not being able to think about this stuff, then that's fine, right? But I, that's not something I'm capable of doing. I don't think it's something you're capable of doing. Um, you know, and like I said, we'll see, right? We'll see. Mm -hmm. it's, it's disheartening right now to see as we head towards WrestleMania and everyone's going absolutely berserk for this angle. But like you pointed out, you know, WrestleMania is going to end and somebody's going to have to sell house show tickets. And it's not going to be Roman <laughs> and it's not going to be The Rock, you know, and, you know, where are they going to be after they have essentially told you that the guys who are there every week are sort of worthless, right? Say Cody does actually beat Roman Reigns. Who's he going to face? Who's he feuding with? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think, you know, we're going to transition a little bit into sort of our next topic. But one of the things that's sort of fascinating is that Cody was the person who kicked off the big resurgence in WWE's mm -hmm. creative, like their big renewal period came with the, with the introduction of Cody Rhodes, right? That was a free agent signing that they went out and made happen. And, you know, WWE has made it very clear that they're just not either interested or willing to do anything that they need to to get free agents. They haven't scored on a single person since then. And again, Jade Cargill is the exception to that, I think we could argue, but everybody else, it doesn't even seem like they've made an effort. And the biggest one, obviously, that we're going to discuss is uh, Okada, which is kind of where we're going to transition to our next topic because it's pretty clear that uh, Kazuchika Okada is signed with AEW or is about to sign with AEW and will be 
debuting there relatively shortly. Um, so, you know, does WWE not think they need to bring new people in? Do they look at their roster and think, hey, it's not going to be a problem. We have Braun Breaker on deck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> We've got uh, Tony, Tony D. <laughs> Stax is, is ready to come up, like, you know. You're going to start I mean, giving me names. I have no idea who they are in a minute. <laughs> Alba Fire, know. that's a woman. I don't know who half these NXT people are. Like, what? What are these stupid names? But to, but to your average WWE fan, do they know who these people are? And are they going to be excited to see these people wrestle? And are these going to be the leaders? You know? Like, no. what has the WWE produced from the Performance Center? I think you could argue that Bianca Belair has been the most successful, right? What has, who's come from the Performance Center that's been a real big difference maker for them? It's just a woman. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's just, just the women. women. Yep. Right. They haven't been able to, they haven't produced a dude, and all the dudes <laughs> don't seem to want to stick around. They're all the, headed out elsewhere. The thing around that is, so TKO were, are quite known for doing this with USC. Yes. So they pick up free agents at low price, or they pick up the people they want, but then when they don't want you, or they don't think you're a value, they will just dispose of you. And it doesn't matter how long you've been there, it doesn't matter what you've achieved, that's just what they do. And to me, I thought about this quite a lot, and I spoke to a couple of people about it, and I think that this is pretty representative of what they will do unless they think you can have a guaranteed value. So Cody had a value. I know this is before TKO, but he had a value. He had his TV numbers behind him. They knew what they were getting. And when that worked, then that kind of opened them up to thinking more around kind of we just take, you know, top guys from AEW. And <laughs> I know that Dave Meltzer wrote in The Observer about, you know, morale in uh, AEW and the possibility of, you know, people not being happy. And I know that kind of sparked a bit of uh, annoyance. I don't know. Maybe we'll call it something else, but we'll, we'll say annoyance. But they are very top-heavy at the moment. So yes. they have a number of top acts. They do not have anything underneath, practically. I think that's pretty safe to say, especially on the male side. They know full well that they've probably got enough for two or three years, maybe. We'll see. You know, That's something that's maybe a question. But if they do have enough for two to three years, that will then put them in kind of line with a lot of people that signed with AEW who have earned big money. And the reality is, is Dave is probably right. He's probably way ahead. Like, he's, he's doing what I do, like, thinking three years ahead. <laughs> um, but not everybody will be a star not everybody can be the star not everybody can be the guy and people do want that they do want to have things centered around them and you know AEW was built on people like that that were kind of pushed to one side in WWE and were never seen to be you know one of those top players John Moxley Chris Jericho Brian Danielson so you will get people going the other way I think at some point and it's just kind of a reality but for the meantime, if they, I don't think if they think, and it's not that they didn't try and make a play for him because they did the whole Nakamura push. Right. Which <laughs> uh, <laughs> is kind of funny when you think about it, you know, chaos bits and stuff. But I think it seems kind of pretty, it's pretty well said that Akada was kind of always going to AEW. I don't yeah. think they really had a serious kind of look at him from his side maybe I don't know from theirs but I think they worked out soon enough that 
that's where he was going. I think the whole thing that I find fascinating about this, and I think you're absolutely right, right? And I do wonder if things had been different um, with the elites contracts and how things had rolled out with them, you know, if that would have happened a little bit sooner. But I do think there was a valid and understandable concern that at some point, you know, AEW wrestlers are going to look at Cody's experience or whatever and say, Hey, it's been good for him. There's a hole over there. Uh, I'm not getting the spots I want here. And I think, like you said, Dave's concern is valid. I do think it is always funny when Dave is like, this, things are really good in AEW. Here's how it's going to go badly. <laughs> because it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, I'm a natural pessimist, so I, I kind of I kind of get it. We've got five minutes where things are just going well in AEW for once. God. So that's like a valid fair. And I think if you tend to look at wrestling in, in, in terms of upturns and downturns in like a three to five year cycle, which probably matches up with a lot of your contracts, right? I think what will happen is... Regardless of what wrestler decides that they're going to go to WWE, the narrative will be, oh my God, AEW wasted them. <laughs> WWE is going to do an amazing job. Regardless of how they've been used, the quality of their pushes, you know, whether they end up an actual big star. I mean, we've seen what the, the dialogue was about Jade Cargill, and she's effectively <laughs> just come out of vehicles, right? She hasn't actually done anything yet. Um, so I think that's going to be, you know, that's one frustrating thing. And I get it. And like, quite frankly, this is part of why having two companies is good because it gives wrestlers an opportunity to say, hey, this isn't working out for me. I want to try something different. And I think why I'm sort of surprised is that, you know, you do need to freshen up your main event scene, right? And there's downsides to that. And I think we're going to talk about that. I don't think that I'm particularly, <laughs> you know, I'm not necessarily sold on the idea that Okada is going to be this incredible difference maker for them, you know, or that even quite frankly, oh, Osprey is going to be a huge difference maker for them. I think that's very much to be determined, but at the very least, it's going to freshen up an upper card, right? That has been at times a little bit stagnant. So, and there's going to be downsides to that, which we'll also touch on. In <laughs> WWE's case, Who's freshening up that upper card if they're not touching any of these free agents or these free agents are not even considering them for various and asundrical reasons? Like we said, where's Cody's next opponents if he wins this title? He's going to go back to feuding with the Judgment Day? Like, how many times do you do that? <laughs> like, I think Priest still has the briefcase, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do they care about the briefcase? It's Give like, it a rock. It doesn't have to make sense. Just give Jesus. it a rock. Somebody could do something with it. But yeah, <laughs> I do think that's kind of... I think I am less surprised... I, I'm more surprised that there isn't been a movement from anybody yet in AEW to go to WWE or, or from some of these other companies to go to WWE. And um, I've kind of expected it even though it hasn't happened yet. And it kind of... It, it's just very curious because, again, it's another one of those situations where WWE is so hot, WWE is so good, WWE is so amazing, they have not gotten a single goddamn free agent that they've even thought about 2023 and so far 2024. It's so. also that bit about kind of um, the kind of uneasiness of what's going to happen there. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we've gone, it's kind of gone full circle on a year. So you've gone from kind of AEW being kind of the destabilized environment yep. to WWE being more of that and maybe that doesn't reflect in terms of their backstage atmosphere but there must be a concern that we don't know what's going to happen with this product we right. don't know what's going to happen with this company um and the difference will be with you know a lot of people that have signed big contracts in AEW. it's the first big contract so yes. it's very much easier as you know dean ambrose john moxley showed when you've got millions of dollars in the bank to make that decision 
than yes. when you don't. So that's where that will happen. Um, but <laughs> it's not just WWE that kind of uh, are going to feel this because New Japan. Oof. <laughs> Oof. I like. Oof. I like. You wrote on the notes. You wrote like, "Oh boy, oh boy." <laughs> Yeah, well, I sort of started typing this up after a lot of the financials for Bushi Road's uh, <laughs> second quarter financial reports came out, and uh, yikes, uh, their finances are not good. I think um, the wrestling in general lost a bunch of money. Their revenue in the second quarter of 2024 was significantly down than their revenue in the second quarter of 2023, which to me was a bigger red flag than like the actual monetary loss, just that they couldn't sustain it. There's major problems with start with stardom, excuse me, which is a promotion that we don't really discuss. I don't think either of us are really up on it. Um, We're not knowledgeable enough to. No, no. I wouldn't. Even, yeah. And I feel like I wouldn't touch it because I feel like that'd be a thing that we'd be just like. <laughs> said something wrong like yep yep we said something wrong but i think from a business perspective they're in a heap of trouble um they're losing a lot of money and new japan is also losing a lot of money um so you know it was the thing was so when you look at their business report in full because i'm sad enough to and you knew i would be of course um, that's why i gave it to you i was like look at this No, so if you want to, sometimes you want to think about the context of any time of things when they do any kind of these economic statements is how the market reacts. And yep. the stock price went down kind of 18% in a day and yep. it's now down 48% of the value one year ago. So that's not reflective of the yen or the currency exchange rate. And actually what you find with stock markets and when I was looking at the uh, couple of the Japanese journalists I follow is people buy into a stock market when the yen is low or a currency is low because they think there's value there that can then raise as that currency rebounds or as that yes. economy rebounds, you know, they've just entered a recession. And it's quite clear that Bushy Road as a stock is way underperforming the market. And it's not just their wrestling business, you know, they have no. their games division on the side that you know, they released a game and then close it down the same day. Yeah. <laughs> so and then when it comes to you know, New Japan stardom, there's been a real cratering with stardom. So you went from their big, big show in December 2020, uh, 2022, uh, Ryogoku, you know, much celebrated. And then their attendances have kind of fell off since there. And there's been some injuries. There's been, you know, Kairi saying leaving, that sort of thing. Yep. But this thing with Rossi Agawa setting up potentially a, well, he's going to set up a rival promotion has just left their recent attendance this year, six, seven hundred. It's not going to sustain no. where they are currently. And you are not going to get back to the amount of growth and attendances that you saw in 2022, early 2023. You know, last the previous quarter, and they work their quarters June to June. I don't know how you guys do in the States. Um, Your financial year, are you just like one, two, three, four? Yes, but it's like okay. October, uh, uh okay. September. Right, so ours is April, so it's it's all complicated. But in Japan, it's like June to June, and you see, you know, the the, the kind of last quarter where they had an operating loss for New Japan solely of 120 million yen, and you've got to think about the reintroduction of New Japan World during that period. Yep. And how that lost kind of some of the settled income, you know, the people that were just kind of renewing but not actually paying attention, which is most of us who then turn it on when we need to. <laughs> um, we all do that, right? No. Um, 
they also lost their strong spirits game because it was just going to come too costly to take a card out, take JY out, take Will Osprey out. So it's just that's a game. And that was a, a you know the gaming part of for New Japan were a good source of income. And then it's really a kind of about for them it's about attendance because that is the backbone of their business. Always has been. You know, there's not big TV deals here. Yep. And what they did so. They obviously recognised that it was going to be an issue for them last year. So they ran more events in 2022 than they did in 2023. And where they cut down, interestingly, was internationally. So they went from, where are we? 34 events in 2022 to 17 events in 2023. And we're already seeing a cut down again this year. Yes. So... We've changed their complete strategy on that. And, you know, it's, it's a good idea to do it because the dollar is stronger than the yen and you pay a lot of talent in the dollar. So if you can generate a significant amount of income in the US, then it will help you across the board. And they've changed, the change of strategy is good because, you know, one of the most recent events they ran end of last year was the one in Curtis Cobalt Center in Garland, Texas where Polestar said they sold 720 tickets for a yeah. gate of 48,230. And that doesn't even cover the sides. That's a massive loss maker. Yeah. Um, you, can, you can't run on that. So changing to do the kind of the arena model, you know, you've got Wintrust already at 4,979. You've got Ontario Centre in... What's an Ontario Centre? Toyota Center in Ontario. My yes. God, let's get my <laughs> let's get my old around. In uh, Ontario, California, it went on sale on Sunday. Uh, that's at one thousand one hundred thirty-nine. So that one's going to need some work. I would suggest that be it that it is uh, the week of Bullet Club's formation mm. anniversary. That I would probably get some people that may live in that area who <laughs> were probably going to Wrestle Kingdom last year and didn't uh, because of stuff that happened with all that. And I would probably, you know, go and get the other guy as well that used to be dead that's not injured. And, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> we all know that's the best way to get over an AEW, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that joke. But, you know, their domestic attendance has been struggling as well. So they averaged 1.8, uh, 1,800 last year. And that was up from 1,500 in 2022, but way off what they were doing, you know, 2,600, 2,700 in their, their kind of peak in 2018, 2019. And you think about it, that includes the huge figures that you got for Wrestle Kingdom last year, which was yeah. a massive increase from the previous year. And also running kind of um, bigger venues for New Japan Cup opening day at Rio Goku and then running the uh, anniversary show. So they're not doing that this year. It's much smaller venues. So uh, Otter Gymnasium is going to be an anniversary show. So that's a bit of scaling back. And you've then got the first day of New Japan Cup is going to be in Corican on the 7th. We might have a, maybe a slight live report from one of them. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Well, we no, no. I'll just we say plan, after. We have plans and schemes. We'll see if they come yeah. to fruition. It'll be like, was this show good? Yes. End of report. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a recapper. I'm not a good recapper. Anyway, um, but the other thing they've done, you know, you know they, they are bringing in some foreign talent. So Nick Nemeth and Matt Riddle. God, why, why did I have to say that one? 
you know, they're coming in for new beginning support this weekend. You know, if you look at the sales for night one and night two, they're both featured on night one. It's, I wouldn't say they're a massive investment, but I can kind of get the idea of trying to invest in people that were, you know, not under the kind of politics that you are with AEW. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's one of them kind of things. I don't know. But it's kind of, there's an interesting one as well. Is um, Did you see, there's a lot of people talking about, should John Moxley beat Tetsuya Naito? This has, like, become a big, like, talking point that I yeah. am, like, to me, this feels like a very U.S. talking point. Like, yeah. it, it's, it's like, you know, how does that help New Japan sell tickets in, in Japan? Like, that's great if you're, like, a Mox fan or you're a, or you're a fan of the U.S. element of New Japan. But, like, how does making John Moxley the IWGP heavyweight champion help New Japan wrestling rebuild its business in Japan? I don't think that it does. No, and, you know, Tanahashi spoke when he took over about wanting to expand the house show business, wanting to have bigger matches on the house, show biz- on the house shows to kind of, if you increase that, then you increase your attendances for the big shows and then for, and for the Tokyo Dome with the goal of selling out the Tokyo Dome and putting a belt on a guy who won't be there. No. And will be under... The constraint of uh, whatever Tony Khan wants him to do. Right. It's, uh, it's not the right option. Um, the fact that people think that way, it's like, oh, they need this big kickstart in the West or for world. No, they, they need to focus on their own, their own people. They need to focus on, you know, the people they've got coming up. Um, with Tetsuya Naito, you know, you need to do that Hiromu match. Hiromu, stop fucking around with Dookie. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? Like, it's got to stop. Um, yeah, you've got Yoda Suji, Shotumino, and then Zack Sabre Jr. You know, this has right. to be the year for Zack as well. He's committed to New Japan. So, you know, you've got to run with him. You've... I mean, this this seems to be the other piece of this, right? Is New Japan needs to... to they need to focus on their internal business they need to focus on their japan business right they need to as you said maybe be a little bit more strategic in how they handle their u.s side which i think we can see that they've already sort of done but you know they have to figure out how to fix their problems for their own like i think there's a u.s fan that looks at it looks at new japan and looks at the issues with the new japan in a very specific way and I think this report, if nothing else, sort of indicated that there's a lot of problems going on with New Japan on both the business side. You know, um, Okada leaving, there's a lot of backstage stories about that and, you know, what he was and was not willing to do and his happiness, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, they it, put it, him in the second match in the show. Yeah. Kind of yeah. says everything, yeah. Yeah. Didn't end, isn't ending well, I guess is the best way to describe <laughs> it. But, um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like... It it this is not, yeah. It, 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 making John Moxley the IWGP champion is not going to solve this problem, and is probably a terrible idea. And I'm sorry to anybody who thought it was a great idea that I'm <laughs> being yeah, suddenly mean to. And we we can take John Moxley out of the pool of people that can put over these people coming into AEW. Seriously, like who do you think these guys are going to be able to work with? There are. How many actual 
kind of real draws to convert people at the moment. Right. There is Chris Jericho, you like him or not, and he will be involved with Will Ospreay at some point if you can't figure that out from where they're going. Yeah. There is John Moxley. There is Kenny Omega, who's on the shelf, and then when he comes back, I expect him to do something to kind of endorse Osprey on that side or be involved in that program. You know, he's. I'd be very surprised if he can just come back into any field of singles, and I, I, God, I hope he doesn't for his health. You know, his yeah. health comes first. And there is MJF, who will likely come back into a, something of Adam Cole. God help us. Yeah. Yay! Uh, yay! <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yay. Right. So, mm. other than that, you know, in terms of, and then potentially, you know, your next level below, oh, and Brian Danielson, of course, um, who's also won a kind of his uh, retirement tour. So, right. you have to mix that in as well. But then, and then you have the level below with your own Cassidy or Adam Page. But other than that, you know, that's kind of where it stops. So, you have two guys to, get over and it's it's much different from when they had Cole or, or Punk and Danielson come in in 2021 because these were guys that had been on TV that had a value that had a presentation that had an expectation but could easily adapt and you know Punk was a draw Danielson was also a draw although maybe not to the level that people thought he was but that's Brian Danielson <laughs> his entire career uh, yeah. and then Adam Cole was you know NXT main event a draw so you <laughs> I'm so sorry I don't know if anybody had caught that that was like the sickest burn possible like just Trish like casually dropping these like boom I was an NXT draw like wow <laughs> this is why sorry 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 I was nice for like nine months. You were so nice for like nine months. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Until full gear when I just completely lost my, my, my temper. Yes. We all lost um, it. So you have to do more to establish these guys. Well, that's just it. Especially with a US TV audience. Right. You're bringing in two guys who you're going to be slotting into your, you're paying a shit ton of money to them, obviously. You're slotting them obviously close to your main event, Right. Osprey's been making hints all over the place, and Tony Khan's not exactly hiding it that he's going to Wembley to win that title, right? Like, that's, you know. And you, as you were saying, you know, some of these guys are going to have to be introduced to a, um, and they obviously, they've appeared before. Osprey and Okada have appeared on AEW television before. They're not, un- the audience is not unfamiliar with them. But you're going to have to establish them and establish their winning record. And how are you going to do that, right? Who are they going to beat in the main event scene? Who are they going to face in the main event scene? Because they're both going to come in as like super hot baby faces because your debuting guys almost always come in as super hot baby faces. And I think we've seen in Adam Cole's case, when they don't come in as super hot baby faces, it doesn't reflect, they, they, they still end up getting cheered over the faces that they're paired against. Yeah, they're just going to tread over them anyway. Right. So, so who's, who are the heels that you currently have in your main event scene that these are guys that can beat, right? And it's, it's pretty thin. And that doesn't even get into the part Name where Name me an actual heel. Right, an actual heel, as you said. <laughs> we've, done, we've done this rant before, but... As you've said, we're in a situation right now where we're thin on actual heels. Um, you know, we saw this last week. We had... <laughs> Maybe not the best example to use. We had John Moxley versus uh, Dax Harwood. Dax Harwood, mm-hmm. you know, for all that we have our own opinions, is a babyface that the audience has shown to historically like. 
John Moxley did a beatdown on Dax Harwood at the end of that match, and the audience was like, "Woo, John Moxley, yay!" <laughs> like the audience was not gonna participate in it. So, you know, are you running the risk of exposing your potential new people by putting them in programs with AEW originals? And I think you and I can both say. Your regular AEW audience has been burned by this before. We had 2022 and 2023, <laughs> more 2022 than anything else, where it was a parade of ex-WWE guys coming in and getting wins over, you know, the guys that we started watching the show for. It wasn't fun. I think it drove off yeah. a lot of audience members. I think it directly led to part of the reason why there was a big downturn in business in 2023 for AEW. Um, but, you know, this is, this is when I say I question... Like what's gonna ha- whether Okada and Osprey are gonna be able to convert business? This is the kind of stuff that you and I are talking about. Like, it's not just like oh you don't know you know. There's there's some clear danger signs here. That doesn't mean they can't be fixed or rafted. I want to say rafted over. I want a whitewater rafting analogy here, which is really weird. <laughs> it's not that we can't. Do we have? Raft a- I don't know. Is, is that right? Is that a, is that a correct? Is that correct terminology? Do you raft over? I I, do have I do I look like someone who's ever been wait what a rafting before? I have, but I don't know nothing. <laughs> I feel like I've seen it in a commercial. Whatever. There's still problems. Go outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're still gonna see how this plays out. I, I mean I'm personally pretty excited for it. I think, you know, the build to this pay-per-view has definitely been one of the better ones and certainly one of the better mm-hmm. ones we've seen. Um, probably maybe since Revolution last year, I gotta be honest with you. Um, I think, but the thing about you know, people think that you can just convert somebody straight over, they think that they can be a a draw straight out the gate, and that's never happened in AEW. No, so okay, so John Moxley was a draw when he came in, Cody Rose was a draw when he came in, but that was because they were established on TV elsewhere. Right. Chris Jericho as well. Kenny Omega is a far bigger draw in the West in his history, his attendance numbers, world numbers, than either of Akada or Will Ospreay. Some people might not like that, but the numbers are there. Right. And you know, when did he become a TV draw on a sustainable, regular basis? It wasn't in 2019. It wasn't no. even 2020. It was mid-2021. It was, in fact, the Jungle Boy match. If you want to pinpoint it, it's the Jungle Boy match. That's where he becomes a sustained TV draw. And it's a quite a long period of time. It's not... And this is a guy that was... You know, people argued about his presentation from the start. You know, a lot of people thought he should have been the first world champion. You know, to make the kind of... The company feel different. But when you look at it, it should never have been anyone else other than Chris Jericho. No. Because... There's a difference in the fan base, and the TV fan base is made up of so many different parts. But you have to kind of, in general, you convert the 18 to 34 fan base first, and then they age up. You know, we talked about that with Adam Page, kind of finally getting into that position himself. It's been five years, (laughs) (laughs) and he had, you know, the biggest program TV rating wise in the history of the company. So it's not an instantaneous thing, and I think. That's kind of an interesting thing to, to think about when these guys go forward. So they will need to be matched with people that can draw. You know, Jericho, yeah, he's still a TV draw, whether you like it or not, whether people like it or not. John Moxley, 
Absolutely. But the thing about a lot of these guys are is that they have not protected anybody or the roster is not in the state that it was in 2021 to sustain this kind of thing in the way that they were. Right. So, you know, Orange Cassidy was in a uh, pretty much a good vein of form back then. Darby Allen was off the back of really successful TNT title run and then was rampaged into the ground and uh, disappeared. Yep. You know, Kenny Omega has put over how many people? He's going to come back and be the biggest baby face. Yeah. You know, you've got to compete with that. MJF is going to come back and he's going to want his influence. He's going to want his bits and pieces. Yep. You've got to compete with that. And with establishing these new guys, you know, who have you got to put over? It's going to fall on the same people that it did last time. And, you know, <laughs> when people say, you know, why is this not a babyface company or why is this not kind of, why do people kind of question or not trust? And it's like, if you keep telling people that the people they are invested in do not matter and all they should do is look for outside, then they're just going to sit on Twitter and wait for whose contract's going to be up. You have to keep those people's investment because the people they gained last time around were less than the people they lost. Yeah. So, um, <coughs> I've got. To, I want to do a whole rant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a thing that you know, I'd like to know is: Has Tony actually learned anything from 2021? And what made me think about it was was when he did the all-in press conference straight afterwards. And he was kind of very emotional and raw, obviously, with everything that happened with Punk and that night. Was he very much put the kind of the decline in their business down to the injuries in June and July to Adam Cole, Brian Danielson and CM Punk. And it made me think, do you actually know what caused a lot of your decline because a lot of them things were already in, you know kind of in place right. before we got to june you know their live right. event sales were not as strong as they were before any of these people turned up going right. into 2022 the ratings were starting to kind of drop down after their kind of initial uh, big bang theory we load up with every free agent known to man hi <laughs> The spring, you know, we had a debut every two weeks. People kind of became addicted to the debuts, but less actually invested in the characters. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of been a consistent thing ever since. And, you know, when you spoke earlier, you said around, he gave us a Dax Harwood example, which I actually wrote down earlier, so it's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, Same page. Yes. Um, but that is all over the show. It's all over the show. All right. Tony Storm. I know people love the Vignettes, but leaves nothing to work for for the babyface. They cheer Tony Storm. Yeah. House of Black, they cheer them. Tomorrow Joe's a babyface. Adam Copeland's supposed to be wrestling Christian in like a grudge match as a babyface, and they boo him. Um, God, Darby Allen faces one of the only heels in the actual company in Christian and gets booed in his hometown. Okay? <laughs> this isn't just a case of, oh, you know, these people aren't over. It's a case of people aren't trusting the direction of the company. So they do yeah. what they want. They do what they want and demand what they want. And it's exactly what we saw in WWE for most of the 2010s. Yeah. And that's what we've seen quite consistently. Um, 
it's kind of they've not been able to escape that and the thing about that is is that it kind of highlights where things have changed because that never used to happen outside of Cody and it's Cody because they thought he was insincere they didn't think he was a real character he was like like Pinocchio not a real boy Uh, well Cody was Cody (coughs) excuse me plastic (laughs) Cody was at the end and this is why I get so people are like well he was clearly turning heel and I'm like watching a different show like the guy was chasing whatever cheer he could get because he lost the audience and we talked about that a little bit with MJF but like losing the audience it's like holy shit like and I don't know that necessarily the wrestlers have lost the audience on AEW as much as the the program, the booking has lost the, the booking. It's always the booking right. when that happens. Right. Um, but it's it's been consistent pretty much ever since they did the kind of talent turnover in 21-22. Right. And it doesn't allow you to build stories strong enough to kind of raise that business up. So then you become reliant on people coming in and that kind of the debuts and that sort of thing. And, yeah, you know, when you think about, you know, Tony keeps saying, oh, 2024 is the new 2021. Oh, God, I when hope I... not. <laughs> some, some. But when I think about 2021, I think very much about that. You know, there were baby faces, there were heels. Then there was Cody, in his Cody-verse. But people believed in the alignments, they played along. You know, they loved Kenny Omega. They booed him like hell against Adam Page. Yes. Right? So that's what you do. But there was also a real progression of kind of young talent. There was a belief that you could trust them in kind of bringing people up. You know, Jungle Boy, when he won the Battle Royal at Double Nothing uh, 2021, everyone thought Christian Cage was going to win it. It's a perfect example. Yeah. But then there was also, and I think this was kind of the heartbeat of 2021, it wasn't all the signings. It was that they had an overreaching story, you know, something that told the audience, hey, you know, we've got all these guys, but we're not going to abandon the stories and the characters that you have invested in. Right. And that was such a critical part in why people remember that year so strongly. Then they blew it up a year later, but you know. (laughs) But the thing is, is and the reason why that comes up is you do have the prospect of doing kind of a big story this year that's already in place. And it's kind of funny if they are or they aren't. And will that kind of affect their business? So when you look at Swerve Strickland, he's not a heel no more. Oh God, God, he's please. not a heel anymore. He's not been I'm a heel so... for months now, okay? Um, <coughs> people that keep telling me he's a heel, it's like, or they want him to be a heel, or like, you can't put it back in the box, right? It's no, like a genie taking... No, he's not a heel anymore. The audience is insanely behind him. Yeah. We've talked about this before. Like, you're just killing anybody who goes up against him. Because you're essentially saying, like, he's going to get insane cheers. Like, whoever goes up against him is going to look like a douche. Um, the thing about doing, you know, we've all heard talk about... We don't know how long Samoa Joe's available for. And do they want to kind of get the title quickly on to Swerve and then potentially do an Osprey match at Wembley and then move it on to him? And I think it's the stupidest thing ever. It's so fucking dumb. It's so fucking uh, dumb. Um, this got this, there's so many reasons, right? So he needs to be a babyface going forward. 
and when you are a baby face if you achieve your goal too quickly then people lose interest quite quickly in you oh yeah so i always compare it to you know money in the bank wwe's horrific device of not making world champions that are any good so you could like dean ambrose dolph ziggler they win it three weeks later nobody cares because you haven't had anybody invest in them and it's all about adversity it's all about adversity yeah so when i think back to kind of really successful chases or champions you know different companies you think about you know Dave Batista is probably a really good example because he was quite a successful face champion as well. But you gave him that adversary of after he turned on Triple H of kind of getting destroyed. But they ran through with him and they build him as a top guy and they tried to do the kind of top guy thing. And you can't do that in AEW. He's not going to get billed as the top guy. You know, they tried to do that with MJF and look how it just didn't work. No. It didn't work. So you can't do that. Becky Lynch, that's an example of heel to face. You know, she got the adversity, she got the injury. The, the she get punched in the face by Nia Jax? Nia Jax injures so many people. I can't remember how many times. Was it, wasn't it a kicking or something? Was I don't kicking? remember. She just had the, I remember the bloody nose and stuff. People but, are likely screaming at us, but sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to remember. Look, just, it's, it's quarter to one in the morning. I'm not remembering <laughs> Nia Jax's injuries. But... Yeah, you know, that was an example of WWE tried to make her heel. They tried right. everything. They tried to, you know, they wanted Charlotte as a baby face and it didn't work. And, you know, the one thing that they actually do well, there is one thing, you know, but the one thing they actually do well is sometimes they recognize that and they think, okay, right, so that person needs to go baby face and needs to be the chaser. They're not very good at converting them into champions after. No. Yeah, you know, I think probably Cena and Batista are the last successful babyface world champions in that company. But they are very good at okay, yeah, we need to change that into the chase. And with Becky, you know, they did the the rumble where she wasn't gonna be in the rumble and they played that up and they played that up and that sold the rumble. You know, when she won the rumble there was people dancing, like thirty five year old men just dancing with each other, hugging on the floor. And it was you know, it was quite a sight. And then they said back again. And it's the same, you know, Daniel Bryan, probably the most famous one. You turn him from heel into babyface, you have him chase the afari. They, you know, okay, they didn't care afterwards, but you built that up so he even had to win two matches in one night. And it was so memorable. People talk about it still. They still talk about what's the best babyface stories. And what do you hear? Daniel Bryan. Sometimes we hear, we talk about Adam Page, talk about Tetsu Naito. And the whole point is about having adversity. So if you have Swerve win the belt in the near future, maybe not at the pay-per-view, we said I'm pretty against it happening that particular night because of Sting's retirement. But if you have him winning in the next kind of few weeks or month or whatever, you are risking him in terms of not having that. And you're also going to have it happen during a period where there's a lot of fucking noise, right? So, well, you like have... you said, you're you're running the risk of telling your audience that he's not as important as all this other stuff that's going on. Yeah, right? big time. 
right? Swerve's not as important as Osprey. Swerve's not as important as the guy that you have invested your time and energy with, the guy that you fell in love with, the guy who got you to buy that pay-per-view, who got you to, to you know, buy that T-shirt, whose song you love, like, you know, you cheered for him over everybody. He's the one you got behind. Well, you know, okay, we, we sort of handed him the title and now we're going to focus on these other shiny things that just happened. Like, don't pay any attention to this. And if you keep him a heel, it's going to murder him dead. Like, if you want to try to keep him a heel so he can feud at some point with, with um, Osprey as a baby face, like, Jesus Christ, like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, don't do it. Just don't do it. Right. Like, it's just a bad, bad, bad idea. You have an actual homegrown talent. And I, I say homegrown, I understand not necessarily, but you have somebody who got over naturally with your audience. Make take advantage of that. Right. Do something with that. Re reteach your audience that their investment and their time will pay off if they, they listen to it. Make yourself a baby face company again. And that's the part where it's just like, that's all we could pray and hope when you talk about this, the lessons of 20, 2021, right? There were a lot of amazing, amazing things about AEW in 2021. It was such a great time. And I think part of it is like, when we talk about the chase, the babyface chase, like watching AEW is a quote unquote babyface ch company, chase WWE in the ratings, chase them in ticket sales, right? Chase them in pay-per-view reviews and five-star matches and all that other good stuff. That was, everybody wanted to get behind it. It was a ton and ton and ton and ton of fun. And I think there is, <coughs> for all that, I think is it Wade Keller who is just, you know, his, his, his analysis is not my analysis ever, but I do think there is a kernel of accuracy when he talks about Brian Danielson not being a baby face right now, that the BCC's being tweeners at the top of the card has not helped the company overall. It has made for confusing alignments. It has made it difficult at times for the audience. And I get why they did it. I get that you want to have fresh matchups and that if you have, you know, babyface BCC, you can't really put them against a hangman or an Orange Cassidy. You can't have them beat your other babyfaces, right? But at the same time, like, it, it, it has confused the audience. It has possibly led to losing some money because people aren't sure what they're supposed to be doing, you know? And I mean... Don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of justifiable arguments or discussions about how, you know, are we in a post-babyface heel time period? Like, you know, are, is there room for tweeners, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm not trying to say you can't ever have a tweener. I just think in a situation at the very, very top of the card, you're like number one top faction, they can't be as, I, I, not, not they can't be, but them not having a clear alignment confuses the overall direction of your promotion a little bit tell me i'm wrong what's the what's the uh hottest match for this pay-per-view coming up oh it's by gotta... tv ratings as well oh, it's stinging uh yeah yeah against yeah. Uh... the one with the one with the actual alignment right yeah the one match right. on this show with a full face heel alignment clear one yeah and if you you know if you because i do this thing now where God, I'm so sad. But I can uh, <laughs> I can take out the lead-in and I can take out the outbreak so I can actually measure which quarters are successful. And the last two shows, it's been Sting Derby in the Bucks. Right. So that is the hottest thing. And, you know, I, yeah, I've, I've listened to quite a lot of the discussions. You know, I, I listened to kind of the face and heel stuff and 
it's particularly we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Hangman and Swerve and how that's developed because I know a lot of people are kind of interested in you know how, why is he the face now and I think we can kind of pinpoint that but you know I listened to a discussion on Tunnel Talk uh, last week and in the Discord the Social Suplex Discord about it and what I think is is that as much as people think we're in a kind of post baby face era we're absolutely not right and a lot of people talk about New Japan. So New Japan has a different setup, a different context in that, you know, how many individual feuds do you get in New Japan that don't involve a belt? Practically none. Yeah. You know, you don't because it's all about competition. It's all about winning these kind of titles and getting to a level. And once you kind of get to that level, you're respected. And it's very much kind of like sumo to me. So, you know, you get to a point where you're a Yokozuna and the challenge is to beat that person, you know, either and get the opportunity to by winning a G1, winning a New Japan Cup, whatever that may be. But you don't necessarily need that person then to be a heel, but they are an obstacle. Right. They are something for somebody to overcome. They're a challenge. So, for example, you know, 2020, Tetsuya Naito needs to overcome Kuzushiko Okada, but that doesn't mean you need to have a heel. However, you have to have baby faces right okay you can have as many heels as you want but if you do not have a baby face you will not be successful and that includes new japan so new japan's success is built off their baby faces yes tanahashi after he got stabbed by his crazy ex-girlfriend whatever the story is that (laughs) really turned around their business that was the start of their kind of golden period for kuzuka okada you know, his major moment was after crying and having an emotional meltdown for not being able to beat Tanahashi to Tokyo Dome. And that drove his next year. You know, Tetsuya Naito is about fulfilling his destino, especially after Osaka basically kicked him out of the country and told him to go to Mexico. So, yeah, <laughs> essentially, you know, Kenny Omega, he turned babyface to go into his total kind of chase at the end, culminating at Dominion in 2018. So... You can change alliance wherever you want in Japan, but because you're a competitor first, however, all their business has been generated by baby faces. Uh, you can have, yeah, you can change alliance, allegiance, alliance, whatever you want to call it. You can play with that as much as you want, but when you get to that business end of that program, when there is a straight kind of either an obstacle or heel for somebody to overcome as a babyface to achieve their goal after facing adversity that makes money every time compared to everything else right i have never seen a company that have been oh we have all these heels and we're more successful than we were before or we have all these tweeners and we're more successful than we were before it doesn't exist and maybe we'll all get there one day maybe that becomes a thing but at current it's it's not and you know that goes back to how wrestling exists in the first place if you go to wrestling school, if you're a wrestler, if you want to be a wrestler, I said wrestler, really southern there. Did you hear that? that was, uh, <laughs> you did. You had a wrestler. Yeah, wrestler. Wrestler. Yeah. Can we keep doing that to me now? But if you do go to wrestling school like that, the very first thing they do is have you be a heel because it's so much easier to be yeah. hated than to be a baby face. And this is the thing, right? So being a baby face is fucking hard. And it's actually even yes. harder now. Because not only do you have to get people to like you, but you have to keep people liking you. 
Yes. That's not easy. And now we live in a world where we have cool heels. We yes. live off catchphrases and music and whatever the fuck else. But it's like, because they don't want to chase real heat because no. they want to be something and they want to progress. And I get that. That's you know part of the industry that I don't think there's enough value putting in real heels and kind of putting people over and creating movement for them rather than the other way around. Right. That's where I think Jay White currently buried doing... What is Jay White doing? Don't tell me, actually. I, don't, I know. I just... He's doing a lot of backstage <laughs> interviews with um, Daddy Ass, unfortunately for him. Joyce, yeah. yeah. But, I'll do uh, my, da- my, daddy, my Daddy Ass rant one, one day will come, but... <laughs> You know, not maybe not today, but at some point there will be a daddy ass rant for me. But yeah, so the thing about it is, is that you need them guys to make the baby faces. And right. there's definitely a thing where people have to compete so much that they focus on making themselves rather than like that. I don't understand that because when you have, especially a roster like that, where it looks like it does. You're going to do that, and the booking there isn't the trust in the booking to per- persuade people otherwise. Right. But if you give someone as a babyface champion and you don't support them, they will create. A, and we've seen that. We've seen, in fact, we've seen both examples. We've seen someone push up John Cena, and we've seen someone kind of made into a transitional champion. Right. And that's probably my biggest fear is that you then turn him into a transitional champion for Will Ospreay. Right. People say, oh, you know, five months, six months, it's a good period of time. Well, you can no. have great matches in that time. Well, ask Adam Page how that went. He had the best title reign in terms of matches in, the, you know, in their history. Never became relevant in that regard. So. The, second, <laughs> the second that Osprey starts going for the title, or even hints that he goes for the title, right? All the focus comes off of Swerve. If, that's, if you're doing mm-hmm. Swerve heel, Osprey babyface chase. All the focus comes off of Swerve. Swerve is pushed essentially aside as a heel while we wait for Osprey. And again, the, the focus and the onus and the action is on Osprey. Osprey is the one making choices. Osprey is the one doing things, right? This is why mm-hmm. you want to cement Swerve as a top guy. He doesn't win yep. at, at Revolution. Either nope. you give it, keep it with Samoa Joe or you, quite frankly, and probably what you should do is put it back on Hangman because he can have a transitional reign because he was a previous but he was your champion yep. before, do a double heel turn and make Swerve chase his ass. And that would actually be, yeah. from a character perspective, works with what you've done for both characters. You cement the heel turn. You don't worry about your alignments anymore. Hangman gets a fresh <laughs> set of babysat face opponents that he hasn't worked with before or has worked with sparingly, okay? There's some interesting new matchups there. You get a new element to the character and you get some adversity for Swerve that he can then chase and go all the way, right? Osprey does not need to worry about doing this right now. He, he, he can be fine and wait. He can have an incredible match at Wembley that does not need to be for the title, right? Like, I just, it seems extremely simple to me and I get that that's probably the danger, right? Because you don't have, you have egos and contracts and promises and sure. all this other stuff that you've done. But at the end of the day, you gotta do what's best for your company and this to me seems like the one thing that would get probably the audience more excited than anything else, right? They're invested in it. You know, look how many extra buys it added to full gear after they did right. that match. Right. You know, people looked at the rating last week and said, oh, that's not great. But there was a lot of kind of outside factors, network premieres, leader not great. What happened with every show this week? It right. went up. Right. So it's connecting. And the thing about Swerve is to me is that, and the reason why he's connected as a babyface is, is he's accessible. He does media. 
Yep. They associate with him. They associate with his goal and they invest in that, which is always the most important thing, you right. know, with a baby face. He has a direct line to the fan base. He's engaged on social media, not just in uh, press media. No. And they think he's cool. Right? He is cool. Because he's Swerve cool. is really exactly. fucking cool. So, like. um, you know, when people ask, they say, you know, how has this happened? And we pinpointed exactly where it was going to happen when they did the house invasion. So yeah. people come back to the house invasion and they say, you know, how did hangman end up getting boo when he got his house broken into and the thing was is the follow-up was so weak that you never got to make feel that you needed a cyber page on that no you didn't so it just became something that cool heel did and rather than something that you want the baby face to get revenge for and then yeah they did the the death match page loses so you then put even more impetus on the heel as in this big success and people buy into it and obviously it kind of went viral a little bit and originally they planned to kind of go back and page to then kind of pick up wins but it made sense to kind of drop it there so instead of giving him you know the win in kind of the staple match as his signature of the feud you're then elevating him higher right so and then you go into the c2 is it c2 yeah God, it's getting like I'm suffering today. <laughs> Rubbish today. Uh, but no, they went to C2 and he's cutting babyface promos. He's doing lead-off segments. He's wrestling heels. What did you think was going to happen? And they kind of tried to put the genie back in the box. You know, they did the Dustin Rhodes thing at the pay-per-view. It was a disaster. You know, he's Awful. cinder-blocking him and they're, and they're all dancing. Um, at this, you know, they've tried for nine months to kind of get people to boo him and they tried to do the legends thing with um the last few weeks in terms of the rankings and then i think they realized they did the rvd thing and this is the swap week if you if you want to look at it and see kind of how they're presenting it so we're not at a point where hangman's fully heal yet because you need no. a trigger for that right and whether that's stealing the belt whether that's you know swerving the belt on him having a meltdown whatever it is you need a trigger and it's the same thing for swerve's baby face you need something to kind of set him off on that path so what you had was was on the wednesday you had hangman being the smart baby face kind of goading him into a match playing on his insecurities on the saturday everything had flipped so swerve comes out with nana for a promo and nana is encouraging the crowd straight away he's literally giant him up right dance with me that's not a heel that's it Right. He comes down the ring, he cuts a babyface promo on you know, his ambitions and involved with Black History Month and praising former African-American world champions. Once you start doing that, you are the babyface. Right. That's it. That's the line. And that's its presentation element. So even like the, the promo this week and Swerve cuts again, you know, very much a babyface promo, gets the big entrance, hangman, Clever guy. I don't want the baby face pop for my music. No music. Right. Come out. I'm delusional. I'm lying, not just to myself, which is... But to you, the audience. Hangman, but to the audience, which he's never done right. before. And that's the way you do it. So whether you think they've turned or not, they are telling you how to react. The reactions they're getting this week, and with Joe, are not what they don't want. It's what they want you to do now. 
So you're on that path. But if you give him that adversity, then you'll get that buy-in. And I, yeah, I absolutely think that he shouldn't win to all in. I think Swerve should win at all in. I, I don't think it should be overshadowed and caught up in all the kind of comings and goings that are going to happen in the next few weeks and be under the shadow of WrestleMania season as well. Right. You know, do it on your biggest stage with all the press. You know, you want to make a guy, but you've got to get people to invest in that guy for somebody coming in in six months and go, like, oh, you know, it doesn't make winning something in a stadium like that with no investment and kind of spent beforehand doesn't make anybody. You know, all that investment went into Daniel Bryan just because he won in the stadium didn't change it. Three weeks later, the crowds didn't care. Right. Sorry, that's harsh, but, and the company definitely didn't care because he was going to get fed to Brock Lesnar before his injury, but <laughs> it's like, you kind of, you have to protect this guy, but you also need to have the right opponents for him. And can you imagine if um, Adam Page had not lost to Brian Cage and had wrestled Kenny Omega at double or nothing? It was far too early. It was too early. Yeah, people wanted to set back. Omega wasn't at his kind of height yet. And I don't think either of these guys are at their height with this. No, this story and hasn't peaked. No, I don't think so. You can so. feel it. So if you kind of drag that out through the summer and, you know, you can put Adam Page with the belt, he can, he'll draw your tickets. There's one thing Adam Page can do in a big match, he can draw tickets. You know, the match they did in Phoenix did 1,400 last week. They've not had a 1,400 last week in quite some time without some help. So let him do that. Let him go out and be a beast and kind of reward him for some of his kind of performances and also his kind of loyalty and kind of not stirring shit up. <laughs> I don't know what you're uh, talking about, Trish. Been, yeah. And the thing is, you, you know, Greensboro is where he lives. It's also where he got buried last year. So it's kind of some nice kind of emotional bits. But the other thing is, is that it's all about opportunity, but sometimes opportunity gets taken from you. So you can be given opportunities, but you have to take them. And that was where this feud started. So you can really play back into that as well. But I think he should win at Wembley. I think he should be the face of Wembley going in. And, you know, they, he's got crossover appeal. He's getting media appeal. Aston Villa are using him to taunt Tony Khan, which was quite amusing at the weekend. It was very funny. Um, <laughs> it's good. But, you know... Do I think they're going to do that? No, I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to try to get the belt on Swerve very quickly. Yes. And then if you're going to do that, you need to have the right opponents. You, know, you look at their, their rankings and you think, well, if he's a babyface, then he needs to be you know, with John Moxley. If you put him in with like Wardlow and Adam Cole first, you're going to kill him. <laughs> oh, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. You know, Wardlow, doesn't so... it, Wardlow can't carry a feud with a new top guy like that. And it's, it's fucking mean to Wardlow, quite frankly. It's mean to Swerve. Like, the... Give him somebody who knows what they're doing and can help him through this, right? Because that's the other part of it is we're going to try and support somebody, right? Yeah. And that's not to shit on Wardlow or the Undisputed Kingdom, right? I'm not – I'm enjoying what they're doing now. They're where they should be slotted. Matt Taven's death match, what a great freaking showing for that guy, right? Like, nicely done. But at the same time, like, you have to know where to position people so they can do their best and be successful for you. And Wardlow being a first feud for a brand new – um for a brand new champion, it is not it, right? It's not it. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be mean to Paul. But it would be a disaster. It wouldn't help him very even twice. 
And Swerve no. will need the help with that first because, as I said, it takes years for people to develop into full range draws. And people will look at that. And, you know, you've got to navigate the next few months, you know, May, April, May with the NBA playoffs and the wildcard games and that sort of thing. That always hurts them. You know, Hangman still gets things thrown at him as a ratings killer and stuff, even though the sequence performed pretty well, actually, in that period. But people still look at it like that because of what happens in their months. And June, you know, they always suffer in June. Every year they've suffered in June. So you have to navigate all that period. That's the probably the hardest period of the year. And then you're going to have the return of Kenny Omega, the return of MJF. So I just don't think it's the right period to kind of um, throw him into even if you have the right people. And if you try and keep him heel and you try and put him with an Eddie Kingston and Orange Cassidy, you're just going to get mixed results. And then you've got to compete. So Jericho's with Osprey doing that. What's Hangman doing? Because once you win the title, you then have that impact of, well, you've reached your goal. So suddenly, well, this guy is now going to spiral. He's going to do that. His work may be more interesting than yours. And it's not because right. you're not a great wrestler. It's not because you're right. not a great talker or anything like that. It's just because of the point of the story that you're in. So you are going to be competing with so many people. And people aren't going to be as kind of, what's the word? Paige is a very giving wrestler in a lot of ways. Right. Probably too giving at times. Um, A lot of people say that. But there are other people that won't be so giving. They will not give you as many opportunities because everybody wants your spot. So you have to promote him fully. And I don't see how you can promote him as your new champion as in the star when you've also got to promote Osprey, Okada and Mercedes Monet on the other side. Right. Plus whoever else you're pushing. So it's, I just think, yeah, it's definitely the wrong time, but if they do do it, then they need to make sure that the follow-up is strong to give him the best possible chance that he can have. Um, Because yeah, we've seen how it goes when you don't. Yeah. Oh, you, you know, I made another bet, right? Oh, God. Was it with me? Yeah. Did I forget this? No, no, it wasn't with you. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> my... Talking um, to you too late in my gin drinking experiences. <laughs> so, obviously, yeah, I'm a natural pessimist. And I think everything that kind of has gone on in the last few years... We, you know, we've had this period between World's End and Revolution. It's probably been the best build for a pay-per-view in donkey's years. Forget so it. Like, forever. Yeah. But... Is this just a build until the new toys arrive? Goes through my head. So I made a bet, right? So if Hangman and Swerve is the main event for All In, I will wear, thanks Mongo, by the way, the worst possible Adam Cole shirt that I've ever seen. Wow. Um, like, I, I thought I can't be that bad, right? So I'll wear an Adam Cole shirt to Wembley. And I'm like, and then they found this Adam, you, you can look this up on Shop AW. There is an Adam Cole shirt that's supposed to say, Adam, uh, Adam Cole is back, baby. But just look at it. <laughs> I'm going to look like such an idiot. It'll be great. Um, so yeah, if he if that if that match happens because of my trust issues being that I bet against it, then uh, I will wear that stupid shirt. And you can all see the pictures. There you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, another bet. I, I, I'm always losing bets, but we'll keep up on that. One. I don't know. I, I I was thinking for sure I had this three pound eighty, but now I think maybe I, maybe they are going to you know last minute freak out and. But then I'm like, yeah, I don't think it happened. <laughs> right. uh, is it three pound eighty still on the exchange? I don't know. It's, it's still but, who, uh, who knows. I'm committed to it because I like the sound of it. That boy. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. So we can, um, I've kind of, it's not like I've been negative enough really, but it's just, uh, I think it's valid concerns, but. Should we talk about tickets? Should we talk about I Mercedes Monet? Talk We've talked about Oscar and Ocado. Let's talk about Mercedes. Um, so big business. I like you wrote, big business is doing big business. <laughs> it's like, then you came up with that one. Um, I was on a roll. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, she is coming into the company finally. And... They got it into the TD Garden, which is great. You know, put them in the big arena. Right March 13th. Boston, March 13th. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realise that date. That's quite funny. I'll tell you after. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting was, is the way that this has been treated. Oh. So, Mercedes Monet was a, or well, Sasha Banks and WWE, was a rating straw in the last few years she was there. Actually, she often quite outdrew Roman and her main event with Bailey at the end of Smackdown in 2020 was the most successful match of the pandemic and yet we always have to compare someone who's drawn and made their own success with somebody else so because of the way they've done this with the hometown debut and with you know not announcing her fully at this point all I've heard for two weeks of various people is well She's not CM Punk. And I'm kind of sick of it, to be honest. So the thing about, if you want to compare it to Punk, right, let's do the comparison to Punk and I want to move on from that because I'm just tired of all this. So the first dance is a guy that came back after seven years of not being in this industry. Mercedes has wrestled since WWE. Yeah. The first dance did... Uh, 13,931 after its first opening week. By the 13th of August, StubHub tickets were on 6 to $7. Finished at 14,376. Why was that? Well, it's different circumstances. So at that time, the company was hot before he even turned up. Correct. They sold 16,000 two weeks before for the New York show. They had baked in numbers from that were carried over from pre-COVID in like 12,000 in New, York, New Jersey. They've just done 7,000 in Charlotte, North Carolina for Fight for the Fallen, which was a 94.4% increase on the previous visit. And All Out had sold out on the pre-sale when they teased the day before the uh, Miami promo kind of yes. thing they did with Kenny and uh, and Hangman and was a resale value of $210 before Punk was announced. So there was a huge scalper intake that really helped that show. And it's not to say Punk's not a draw. He was absolutely a draw in this and his comeback. 
that there were some huge factors that played into that being such a big success right out of the gate. Yes. And one of the it biggest was, ones was how hot AEW was. Yes. And this was something that was discussed extensively at the time, which was that the scalpers lost out on how All Out for 2021, how hot that ticket was going to be. The get-in price for All Out was some obscene number. I think it might have been $300. Dave said it was probably the, the highest get-in price for a paper brew in a dog's age, right? So the scalpers jumped on first dance because they wanted to make, they saw an opportunity. And so as a result, the first dance tickets, it sold incredibly well, but the get in price was very low. The secondary market resale of those tickets was extremely low and you could get them for fairly cheap. Again, still did phenomenal, still was a, a pretty good, you know, a, a comment on his drawing power at the time, not trying to diminish that, but there were other factors, like you said, involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it was like, okay, so if you are going to compare this one to Punk, then why aren't you comparing it to the Collision debut last year? Because <laughs> we know the why. circumstances are, yeah, well, of course we do, but yeah, you know, the circumstances are much more similar. So, other than that, the other one has the advantage that it was in June, so it's easier to buy tickets to go out on a Saturday night in June than to maybe go out on a Wednesday night in March. I think that's, you know, weather wise, everything else. And also, you know, that one was priced slightly lower. So all the upper tier were $30 for the Collision debut. And you kind of go, okay, so when this pre-sale went on, how would that compare? And they went on with slightly higher pricing in the upper tier. Uh, lower price, lower tier pricing was quite similar. Higher in the upper tier, they ran at fifty one fifty, forty one fifty, and twenty six fifty. Actually, the exact same pricing structure they used for Blood and Guts last year in the same venue. But yes. When that went on sale, you know, Blood and Guts, the Boston show in TD Garden that you went to last summer, didn't get over four. four it just got over four thousand tickets when Blood and Guts was announced. Correct. It didn't it, do an on sale of close to four thousand. No. No. Nowhere near it. Yeah. And that that final number ended up being uh, 8,956. Yeah, World's End, when that went on sale, that did just over 4,000. Ended up at 10,000. Full Gear did 4,100 last year in the pre-sale, crossed 12,000 when the final count was made. Big Business uh, did 4,545 on the pre-sale. And as of this past Saturday, it was at 6,006. Pre-sale for Collision last summer did 4,234. So actually he outsold, uh, he got outsold by Mercedes Monet on the pre-sale. Then if you look at the similar time span, that show was at 7,602. And there's a really big caveat as to why, and it's to do with kind of how they're changing and managing their maps. So yes. Sarah, why don't you have tickets for Boston yet? Because uh, they haven't opened up the hard cam section, Trish, and I would yeah. like to, I have a specific spot that I like to watch the show from. So as soon as they open up that hard cam section, I'll buy my tickets. I'm still waiting, checking that map every day. Yeah, so the hard cam side that they, uh, they opened up pretty much as soon as they announced Blood and Guts last year uh, is not opened. And that was open on the first day of general sale for gear for World's End and for that collision show last year. 1,231 seats available in the lower tier on that hard cam side. They'll pretty much go instantly as soon as they go. There are people waiting for them. And sometimes you do that so you create pent up demand and you wanna do two things. So they want people to buy tickets in the upper tier on that side so they can do the huge ranging kind of wide shots. Yep. 
that you know we, that's a kind of that is a WWE thing, but you know we see how that's presented and that's something they seem to be working towards. But also, yeah, you can generate kind of demand for those tickets, so it looks like a hot ticket when you do put them on sale. Or maybe you do that when you announce another match or you announce something else for that show. And I don't think that's a bad strategy, to be honest. And there are some changes in their strategy that look better. Looking at this and looking at kind of the way tickets pathway is, this show could easily do 9,500, 10,000. Easily. And that would mean. This is the thing. That will easily make it the biggest dynamite of the year. And it will be the second biggest show of the year so far, obviously after Sting's retirement in the Greensboro Coliseum. But this is what we're saying. So the first dance wasn't even the biggest dynamite of the year. No. They had one, which they'd already sold. A month later, they did 19,000. And this year, they're not in that same thing. So, and last year, you know, Collision, that Collision also wasn't the biggest TV taping of the year. <laughs> Funny that everybody year. Likes so. to, everybody likes to forget this one, Trish. Everybody likes to forget this. Everybody tries to convince that How many people were like, oh my God, CM Punk's going to sell great tickets. For- T- Collision, like, one day... I, and I pray I'm alive when it happens. People will realize the amount of bullshit associated with the way that, that <laughs> first two months of collision was discussed. You know, oh my God, it was an incredible show. Was it? Was it? Because I don't think it was. Oh my God, everybody wanted to go to those tapings. Did they? Because I'm pretty sure I remember some of those not selling at all. Like, as Dave said, they didn't book the freaking... Um, whatever that freaking venue United is. Be- Center. Thank United you, because Center. they wanted to sell 9,000 tickets. They no. booked the United Center because they expected to sell 15. So, I, I, you know. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, and it fell behind, obviously, Grand Slam and uh, by Pulsar numbers. Because right. nobody gave a shit. LA shows. <laughs> but we'll come back to some collision numbers in a minute because there's some interesting things that kind of have kind of bled over into this year. But, yeah, I really hate this She's Not Punk thing. And it's because... If she is able to perform at a similar level to someone who has been marketed, promoted, pushed to that level by multiple companies, then I think she's doing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, you know, Adam Copeland came in. He didn't do this kind of um, this kind of follow-up. Nope. You know, he's still front of all the uh, material for live events, by the way. It's bizarre. Um, very much a guy who reactions in the house, not so much people in but you know he's been on tv for 25 plus years he's right. not generated a house like this coming into aw you know will osprey's being added to the revolution card because there's no value in adding him to another show and using it like that a card i imagine there will be for the first match that he comes into um but not on this scale by anything christian cage jay white you know even brian danielson first pay-per-view in his uh, hometown in seattle with wrestle dream didn't get even close to this no so this is a success for Mercedes. That's it. Why do we need to say, well, she's not CM Punk. Actually, she's probably going to outdraw CM Punk. And then I want every one of them podcasters, whoever, news journalists to go on. And I'm sure we'll make excuses because we treat people differently. And <laughs> when, you know, depending on our personal investment, I feel like that's represented in that. Um, but... 
It's well, Punk, we've, so we've said this before. Punk doesn't have to be a draw because he is seen as a draw. So everything sure. that happened with him, he's a draw. Was he actually drawing? No. But we said he was, so he was. And I, like, again, actually drawing, not outside the realm of their other guys, right? Like, not outsized popularity, and, it, and that's what it all boiled down to. His popularity was not enough that it, 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 it required the level of extreme hand-holding that, that he required to just exist as a human being in a room with other people. Anyway. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's this thing. See, people are shaping it as a failure and they'll say, oh, but it may not have a huge impact on tickets going forward. But there's kind of some setup and some work being done kind of this year that will likely mean that there's more impact to their kind of uh, momentum than there was previously. You know, if we're honest about it, in modern Western wrestling, in terms of female box office draws, you know, the only two probably above Mercedes at this point are Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey. That's it. It's a short list. So maybe we should kind of, you know, celebrate somebody's achievement. And will it make a long-term impact? Well, you know, we'll see. But the thing that it does do is it will really help their kind of their Q1 average. Because everyone's making this big thing about their ticket sales and... Dave Meltzer did his, you know, it's hard to be <laughs> number two. <laughs> it's hard to be number two, Trish. Doesn't matter how successful you are, you're number two. Now. WCW 99. Let's, let's make a weird comparison. I love the um, guy, but Jesus Christ, it's a nightmare yeah, sometimes to listen it. to him. But there's been so many things that have kind of impacted the ticket numbers that kind of people don't really think about or don't consider or we just feel like we shouldn't consider. So... One of the, the big things for me as well is that they spent a lot of time this last few months following round WWE. And that's yes. been a problem for a long period of time. You know, I think there was a part of it, you know, when you remember when Adam Page had his kind of victory thing in Norfolk, Virginia, and people questioned that number, even though it's way more successful than any time they've been back since. But people will tell you that WWE were in town the Friday before. Yep. And heavily discounting. So that always hurts them. There's also been some really poor map management, but I think a lot of that's been transitional. And the pricing, you know, pricing's been crazy. There's been times where the cheapest ticket to get into Huntsville, Alabama in two weeks was $80. You know, yeah. Jacksonville had no regular price tickets, as we mentioned previously, on sale for seven days. The other thing is, is you've got to say, you know, collision splits your average. So, for example, Vancouver coming up on may 11th is at 5300 first time in a market major market that doesn't count on your dynamite average like it would a year ago it's going to go on collision so you are splitting your major markets your major towns between two now so and you know collision's not strong enough to sustain itself on that level and maybe always dynamite as a split number you know the idea of you add it because if you requested additional tv that's what you do but the idea of having two separate shows at that point in time probably wasn't realistic with where they were. No. And it's all them. So last year they did 470,000 tickets compared to 397,600 the week before. And that was with two additional pay-per-views and 29 collision events. So you can see that they were... Potentially it looks like there's bigger gross, but... On average, they were doing 5,000 per show domestically compared to 5,600 in 2022. And a lot of that can be probably down to having more shows. That's always your first thing. 
so you are weakening your markets because you are running your markets more often because you've now doubled your touring and then the other thing when i look at dynamite is that last year you know they had a really big first quarter they did 5600 up from 5000 in 2022 yeah there was actually growth from that period where everyone said they were fantastic just because raw was so low so it's, it's interesting yep. what comparable was but they had some big first time in markets in phoenix in seattle and they had the la show you know q2 last year 5100 down from 6300 in 2022 which was you know that year was buoyed by first time shows in detroit and la and you know that one was down so last year's q2 was down 90 percent from the previous year but also nine percent from the previous quarter so we were seeing kind of a drop in that period where it's been consistent you know people like to talk about oh they've got an issue with tickets like it's a sudden thing but actually this has been going on since just before all out maybe even earlier 2022 yep so they got all these guys back from injury you know which people said was that's going to cure everything and it is the weakest set of on cells they've ever done and you know you went to um yep. the boston show that's that winter that was just cold and miserable <laughs> It was, uh, was that one, the November 22 yes. one, right after yeah. the, it was, they were teasing the Young Bucks return. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought, well, maybe they'll show up. So we went and yeah, it was not, it was not a fun show. It was not a good show. Um, you know, you can look at it, you can blame pricing. You can look at their relationship to WWE events. You can look at kind of, you know, the other things that they do that's not great, the false advertising. Yep. You know, we advertise so much talent that's never there, or doesn't wrestle, or doesn't appear. We've still got Kenny never... on posters. Yeah, Kenny's on all the Canadian posters. Like, what right. are you doing? Like, please stop that out. But also, the, the products that they were delivering from mid-2021 onwards to their live kind of audience wasn't good enough on a regular basis. And you had exceptions that kind of drew people out for tickets. So, you know, Best of Seven, things like Blood and Guts, Moxie Page series, Max and Cole tag team stuff. Literally anything Kenny Omega ever does. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tickets. But you kind of burn people on that experience. And then to kind of boost the numbers up. So the big thing about this quarter is, is we've lost a discounting. Yes. So we are not seeing four for $60 tickets or $10 tickets, $15 tickets. And... Um, the reason that's important was is the numbers last year are actually pretty comparable with the numbers now, but we didn't know that because they were buoyed so much up. But it's, so, for example, they were in Austin, Texas, well, just outside Cedar Park, just outside Austin, Texas last week, right? And they did uh, 3,246 Gondor Russell ticks. Well, last year, last May, they ran the, the big arena there in the center of uh, downtown Austin, the Moody Center. And the WrestleTix number for attendance was 4,603. And Dave was given a paid number of 4,100. Because remember, this was when uh, he pointed out that Polestar numbers were different. And suddenly yep. he stopped getting paid numbers. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So Polestar actually had the paid at 3,539. So there were 1,064 comps. So 25, uh, 23% of the venue. So nearly 25%. And a quarter of the venue was comps. And this was a consistent thing. So, Washington DC show, month later, Adam Cole MJF, 
Yeah, that one, the attendance number from WrestleTix was 5,599. Dave was told 4,500 paid. Polestar had it at 3,861. So that was 1,738 comps, 31% of the building, who didn't pay for their ticket. And you taught people that they didn't need to pay for their ticket. Yep. Now, Grand Slam had 2,000 comps that went in the week before in one section alone. Just one set of upper tier. All went in. You know, that's why there was such a big discretion if you were following kind of the updates between the final update and the updates during the day. And then you had cheap ticket. So collision. Massive example. So there was, you know, some of this was steered by, we all know, they were so desperate to beat previous numbers in some of these buildings that every ticket was 15 and $20. Yep. And that included, you know, Max and Cole versus FTR, which was a big money match, was $20 across the board. Right. Like, that's not worth $20. You know, people should be paying more for that in terms of their business. You, you made your business worth less. And this is what they have to do now, is that we now have to kind of re-educate the fans into what is the benefit of not the benefit but what is the the value of AEW and we've seen kind of a return to kind of the tier pricing that we saw very much initially in AEW with uh, the dollar sale, which was interesting but in Phoenix you know Phoenix they did yeah 5,248 and what they did was the $20 tickets so they did put some $20 tickets in but they put them in the back of the sections Yes. So people who are at the front are not being persecuted for buying their tickets early and investing in the company, which felt exactly like what you were doing last year. Well, that happened so much during that Canada tour. And for a lot of those collision tickets in that Canada section, you had people spending, the people who bought early spent hundreds of dollars for tickets that you could get for literally $12, like right before the show started. It pissed a lot of people off. You could see a lot of people complaining about it. You look at it, but so yeah, the, the Hamilton Ontario uh, show that was on the Thursday. Yeah, they. <laughs> this sounds crazy. So they WrestleTix number was three thousand eight hundred and forty, and they claimed three thousand eight hundred with three thousand paid. But there was actually a lot less. It was two thousand one hundred paid. <laughs> so it was one thousand four hundred and eighty comps. Average ticket price. It was thirty-four dollars and forty cents Canadian, which is actually less than the average price than the advertised price for tickets for the show. So the tickets were sold at a less price than what they should have been distributed at. So that's um, it's crazy. So I guess my point is, is that when people look at this run and they look at it and they go, oh, you know, they're not selling tickets like any like they, like they were doing. Actually, it's not changed that much since all out 2020, 2021, 22, sorry, I'm going to get that right. It hasn't changed that much since all out 2022. We've seen the same cycle, the same thing, where occasionally we have something that pulls some momentum, that drives some ticket sales, but the rest of it is being comped, it's been low priced, and that's great in terms of, you know, you want to get them crowds for the door, and obviously we've seen some feedback from talent that really like having that there. But in terms of your long-term kind of build and value of your company, you're not going to get people to come back the next time because, hey, they got a ticket for free. If they don't get a ticket for free, is it worth going? Are right. they really invested? Well, we're seeing they're not invested fully because we get reactions like we do. So it's all like a kind of a vicious circle. But, you know, I kind of like some of the changes that are kind of happening. And 
the other thing to think about is when you look at the start of this year, so January they ran Newark, Jacksonville, New Orleans, North Charleston, right? one major market. In February they ran Phoenix, Austin, Tulsa, Huntsville, one major market. In March they are running Duluth. I can't say it. Tell me off the same. <laughs> Duluth. 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 Okay. Duluth is on fire. That's how you do it. <laughs> Oh my god, we're never recording this later again. Um, <laughs> no, but they ran Duluth, Boston, Toronto, Quebec City. What's that? Maybe four major markets, three at a push. So you're going to see a huge difference in average. So January average was 3,181 according to WrestleTix. February average currently is uh, 3,294. I run some um, trackers that kind of estimate what that'll end up at, and it thinks it'll be closer to 3,501. Yeah, nice and precise. And March, <laughs> yeah, March currently is at 3,374, but you can see there's some big numbers coming. You know, Toronto will pick up massively there. Oh, no, I can't say it. Say it again for me. Duluth. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, if, they, if they ever tie, you know, a Sting retirement ceremony, that will really drive sales there. Yeah. And I fully expect that Boston will grow, especially with the, the last week's sales that they did for Blood and Guts, will grow to around a 9,500 mile. So, you know, expected average there is around 5,500, but that could easily be higher. All of a sudden, you've got a 5,500 month. Yeah. Uh, after all this stuff about, you know, ticket sales and not kind of being competitive. Um, you know, it's quite interesting. If you look at the... AEW ticks page after March, there was very little announced. What I hope we're seeing is kind of a lot of rerouting and yeah. looking at major cities and kind of places you can build that base without having to resort to towns with 60,000 populations, which is just, you're setting yourself up to fail to start with. You can't do that too much. It's, it's just yeah. not going to work for you. But I think we've seen that, like, so much of the analysis of the ticketing is so is like behind where they actually are. Like by the time people are like, oh, there's a problem. Like, a first of all, they're not noticing the problem when it was existing, which, like you said, has been going on for a couple of years now. Yeah. And secondly, they're saying it's an issue. Like, it's like, well, they're already on, on track to fixing it. Like, we're already seeing some some better map management, as you said. They just seem to be doing an overall better job. And you know what's going to happen is that, you know, everybody comes in and it's going to be all about, oh, it's the new people that brought it, but these things are kind of, which is fine. But these changes and this kind of development in tickets and March being stronger, you know, even without big business, it's already looking stronger anyway. These things are baked in. It's very similar to what happened in 2021 in some way. But yeah, I I think we will hopefully, please God, get a reprieve from kind of the way people look at tickets next month because these shows will be stronger We'll be doing kind of 5,000, 10,000 range. And, you know, that's pretty good, especially when you're running two shows a week with the rosters that you've got, um, right. with the kind of the collective way that AEW runs and, you know, not advertising people correctly for shows. Samoa Joe's been on how many posters this year for Collision? Oh. Like, what are we doing? All of them? So there are, yeah. So there are still really basic things that kind of need looking at and need sorting out. But in terms of tickets, you know, it's not as bad as people make it out to be. There's your numbers. I'm not, <laughs> we're not just saying, oh, it's fine. You know, I'll go and get the data on that. But it seems to be that they're making, you know, quite a lot of headway in different areas. You know, they now have kind of a head of people. 
uh, which is important, especially with everything else that we've talked about. Yep. You know, they're improving their training development. They've brought in Rocky Romero, uh, which, you know, he's a, he's a great communicator. He's fantastic for connecting different companies, for being a liaison, for training. You know, this guy has been around since, God, I think about when he first came through, actually, early 2000s. And, uh, <laughs> if you think about where he is now, I don't think I ever would have thought that. But he's a great guy to have on board. And I think that's, uh, you know, even QT Marshall, so he takes a lot of stick, but, uh, you know, he's always had a great reputation for kind of what he does work with the talent. So, yeah, I think that's um, that's definitely a, a building point. And, you know, not just that, we've seen it on screen as well. So we've seen, you know, Revolution Bill's been good. We've seen a lot more coherent kind of AEW. We've yeah. shows finally connected after... Oh God! All Rampage is happening in the same universe as Dynamite, and is happening in the same universe as Collision. And people on Collision are talking about what's happened on Dynamite, and people on Dynamite are talking about what's happened on Collision. It's a human miracle. It's it's like Jesus Christ finally, you know. Like I, I, I think that there's just you know we talked a lot in the beginning about stuff that makes us a little bit nervous and things that could be done better. But realistically, so many of the things that we were complaining about in November and December have been fixed, right? Yep. So. <laughs> we keep continuing with this theme of, hey, we're going to feel optimistic. What, sure. what are we going to have to talk yeah. about? <laughs> it's good because they've given the baby faces something to be vocal on and yeah. reinforcing angles going into pay-per-view. And yeah, so, you know, we'll see what goes on. I think May uh, March is um, it's a pretty critical month for both promotions in the US. Yeah. Yeah. And pretty much probably for New Japan as well, going into New Japan Cup, you're going to see what the direction of their company is March, April, going forward into pretty crucial summer for them as well. So, yeah, we, yeah. we're doing optimistic at the end. We, we, we're doing optimistic. We should probably lead with optimism, but I think apparently cool. being negative gives you, gets you. I mean, we don't really care if people listen. We're excited that they do, but we never expect that they will. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, um, <laughs> I'm just, I don't do think it. I can come up with, uh, no. <laughs> Got plenty of things. You got plenty of things to deal with on a day-to-day basis. My trains to be angry about. I can't be angry about wrestling all the time. No, no. Right, it's okay. Well, I think that's. Uh, I think we've gone through everything that we uh, we can do there. So for today, this has been the Trish and Sarah Wrestling Podcast. We are produced by the incredible Leah from Tunnel Talk, who we've inflicted a very short turnaround on this week. So additional yeah. thanks for getting this one out there. We are a proud member of the Social Suplex Network. Please head over to socialsuplex.com and check out all the other great show on the network, including Tunnel Talk, Keeping It Strong Style, One Nation Radio, Imps WW Adventure, and every other great podcast on the network. If you want to give us any feedback or contact us for anything else, any questions, want to send me other shirt suggestions for any bets I might get into in the future, you can email us at trishandsarahpod at gmail.com, trishandsarahpod at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter, not X, at, at Trish and Sarah <laughs> at Trish and Sarah. If you enjoy the pod, you can also leave us a review on whichever app you join us on each fortnight. Your feedback does really help us, and uh, especially the last couple of weeks, we, we really, really do appreciate it. Uh, yeah. We will be back post-revolution to discuss all the updates to the wrestling world but until then i've been trish i have been sarah 
and this is our podcast.